Israel, the land of Abraham, a homeland for Jews, a people who've suffered unique persecution throughout history. Fifty years after the Six-Day War, it is a successful, modern, technology-driven economic success that exists side by side with millions of Palestinians and occupied and oppressed people, some of whom are determined to destroy the existence of the state founded as a safe harbour. Is there any possibility of peace in our time? In studio, Oliver Sears is owner of the Oliver Sears Art Gallery, the son of a Holocaust survivor and a board member of the Holocaust Education Trust. Susan Phillips is a foreign affairs analyst and Yasser Alaskar is an assistant professor at the Irish School of Ecumenics in Trinity College, Dublin. Um, Oliver, I want to start with you, please. Um, could you give me a brief um, history of your family? and what the idea of Israel means to them? Uh, That's an easy question. Um, (laughs) So my mother's family uh, came from Łódź in Poland, which is in central Poland, um, when uh, war broke out um, in September 1939. Uh, They were pretty much uh, devastated. Uh, my, My maternal grandfather disappeared uh, he he was arrested, um, and my mother and uh, my grandmother went on the run, um, uh, and basically through twists and turns involving um, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, um, jumping off a train that was destined uh, to Treblinka, and countless other ridiculous stories of... Um, basically uh, taking decisions that would mean uh, whether you would live or die uh, routinely every single day, several times a day. Uh, they made it through to the other side. Um, in in uh, my mother's family's case, it's interesting. Uh, my, my mother uh, ended up in London. They were destined for uh, South America. But she had two cousins who also survived and uh, they went to Israel. Uh, one went uh, more or less in the first wave from Poland. The other uh, f- found themselves in Peru and moved to Israel in the 50s. So uh, what, what, does the, um, what does Israel mean to Holocaust survivors? It really depends. It means all sorts of things. For instance, the... Um, on one extreme, you have a survivor like Elie Wiesel, who was uh, uh, very, very pro-settler. Um, he, he believed in Israel, right or wrong. And then you have a group of more than 80 um, Holocaust survivors who um, uh, actually are in favor of a cultural boycott of, of Israel. It's hard to fathom. And then you have um, every shade in between. Uh, so uh, in uh, in our case, we have uh, we have within our family we have different views, and we have views that evolve. Um, I, I prefer to speak for myself. Um, so in 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 my case, uh, I certainly came from a position of um, unquestionable support for Israel. Um, I having grown up with. Uh, the the emotional wreckage of uh, this incredible period of history. I felt that a country that uh, offered safe harbor to Jews uh, was essential. This 
crime could could not happen again, and this was a a way of um, ensuring that it wouldn't. Um, as I have uh, grown and matured and become uh, very focused on the Holocaust and what it meant, I have become, um, uh, I, I suppose, uh, unquestionably uh, allied to the theme of human rights and how um, they're indivisible. So to that end, uh, while I, I, I still very much support the concept of Israel, um, I utterly despair at the uh, successive governments of Israel who have um, uh, abused the rights of Palestinians and um, apart from those individual crimes, because that's what they are, it's utterly counterproductive. Um, and I feel as a Jew living outside of Israel with family living inside Israel that um, with, with each abuse, uh, m my life is made less secure in the world. So when Israel as an entity... Uh, misbehaves on a human rights level, it actually not only does it imperil the lives of its citizens, it imperils the lives of Jews around the world. It's a zero-sum game. And uh, fr frankly, uh, it's only a question of time, I believe, when uh, there, there will be a change of government and a change of view because it's not working. And and if you don't want to answer this, it's fine. Do you want to say how your relations in Israel feel? Are their views different to yours? Um, yes, their views are different, um, uh, in, invariably, um, and they're different from each other's. Um, so uh, on one side, we have a, a very affluent uh, uh, group of people who are super confident and just believe in the strength of of Israel. And then we have another, uh, they, they, the, the, those people live in Ramat Aviv, outside Tel Aviv. We have another branch who live in Haifa. And I sense from them that they are um, shell-shocked. They are shell-shocked still from the Holocaust. And uh, the, this eternal war footing has not really made them feel safe. I would like to add, and this is really important, yeah. that um, the Holocaust survivors um, as a group were not treated well in Israel. They were treated almost like second-class citizens because with the formation of this new state, which was fought for, um, the, the new concept was that we are a strong people we will stand up for ourselves. We will defeat our enemies. It was incredibly militaristic. And that has remained and endured. And in the case of the Holocaust survivors, these represented, in their eyes, weaklings. How could you let this happen to yourself? It, it's, it's an extraordinary concept. And the idea that uh, Israel was uh, founded... Uh, so that the Holocaust could never happen again is not 
as straightforward as you think. That's so interesting. Um, Susan Phillips, um, Gideon Levi, um, a Haaretz columnist, and Haaretz is a, a left-leaning paper in Israel. He made that reference to that. In retrospect, the uh, it should be called the 50-year war, not the six-day war. Its life expectancy appears endless. So will you take us back to 67? You'll probably have to precede that a little bit and give us context and tell us what happened then. Yes, I have to go back because I see a much bigger picture. I'm sure that the details are known to you in a great and to Yas in a much deeper way than they'd be known to me. But I'm looking at an overall picture and I'm looking to the fact that in 70 AD, the Jewish race were dispersed to, in the end, all corners of the world. And I'm looking at this extraordinary situation where they've actually stayed as a race and have returned to the land which was their original biblical land. And Jerusalem, uh, what they call their capital, it was never the capital of any Arab state, let's be honest about that, but I'm just going to go back a few hundred years to the fact that the whole of the area which we call Palestine was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, from mainly from Damascus, but then the Ottomans moved west. So that particular area was the area in which now we have different countries because as a result of World War One, two things, 1917, which is a 100-year commemoration of the Balfour Declaration, when uh, an Englishman by the name of Balfour put the case that after the Sykes-Picot carve-up of the Middle East, which was going to come about because the Germans who had sided with the Ottomans, i.e. the Turks, were being beaten. So therefore, when, when the Ottoman rule is over, the greedy French and the greedy British, who's going to have what? And the line was drawn. And during that time, Balfour said, within the bit that Britain are getting, it is the intention of the British government to establish the Jewish a country for the Jewish people who up to then hadn't had one and who had been at the barbaric suffering ends of the Russian pogroms and other events. And they were starting to come back anyway because in in the 1890s, a man called uh, Theodore Herzl had come up with this idea of what some people would call Zionism. I call it Zionism, a desire for Jewish people to have a homeland. Other people call it racism, but I don't. So... The Jewish people were coming back um, into this land and then you hop forward to the land being offered as by the British government and then the British went very cool on it and the Arabs put pressure on them that they should never have said that and the British stopped letting a lot of the who would be Holocaust survivors actually even return to this so-called land. But fast forward to the British saying we're getting out of here in 47 and the UN took it over, took over the mandate of this area. I might add that Britain by that time had given a huge chunk of it away to Jordan anyway, so the land was quite small. And then you had this extraordinary UN vote in 1947, which was to establish two separate states. One was to be Israel and one was to be Palestinian, well, it was called the Arab state. And the Jewish people immediately said, under Ben-Gurion, said, yes, thank you very much. It's not the size we wanted. It's not the size we expected, but yes. And the Arabs said, no way, we want the whole lot. So the flags go up in 1948. The Brits leave. Uh, Israel says, right, this is our country. And within a couple of short weeks, five Arab armies had come in to completely annihilate them. Now, you have to link that up with the idea of Dar al 
Islam and Dayat Hab, which is an Islamic viewpoint, which is that any country, any area that was ever um, part of the Islamic Empire should always be safe. So the thought that these infidel Jewish people were going to have some land that once was part of the Ottoman Empire was absolute anathema. And five Arab armies came in to destroy the, the foundling Jewish state, which, strangely enough, survived it. Then you fast forward to, as you mentioned, 50 years ago, 1967. And by that time, Israel had built up a, a, an army. I'm sure that they um, hadn't done everything right, but they were beginning to prosper a little bit. And they noticed that, A, the straits had been closed, and they noticed that NASA had asked the UN to remove his forces from um, the Sinai, and suddenly you had a whole lot of um, Egyptian troops on the border. And in 1967, yes, Israel took a preemptive strike, and within, I think it was a few number of hours, they'd wiped out the Egyptian air force, which was quite, quite extraordinary, and they proceeded on into um, Egyptian um, area they did and then they went back and against all odds were able to drive the Syrians off the Golan Heights and take possession of that and then were able to get the part of East Jerusalem which we would call the old city so within a very short space six days the complete demography and geography had changed and upon that issue so much came out because the Arab countries surrounding who do not want any form of an Israeli state. They're, they're beginning to perhaps come round to it, but you only have to look at Article 1 of the Hamas Charter to say it's a very religious charter, that's their business, but number one is that the Jews will be removed because they shouldn't be there anyway. So it's very hard to do business with neighbours who only want your removal, and that has to change. And then in 1973, you had the Yom Kippur War, which was an aggressive war against Israel, and by that time, the Arab neighbours were beginning to say, look, this funny little state called Israel, do you know, I think it's going to survive. 1967 changed everything. It showed them that they could survive. And now, I'm sure Yasser will tell us the, the, the present politics, but the main point is, is that whatever happens, if there is a Palestinian state which is formed, the Israelis have to know that it could signal the very end of them, because they gave back the Gaza, which originally had been ruled by Egypt. They gave the Gaza back in 2004. What happened? Nothing. Nothing. It, it was a lovely, fertile place. It's complete chaos. Hamas took it over. They kicked out the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority, which is in, in the bigger areas of what would be a new Palestinian state, they don't get on with Hamas. They've just had a little bit of a rapprochement recently because they've simply had to. And the whole of the PLO, as, and I'll conclude now, has been kind of changed. Yasser Arafat was sort of secular. But now you've got this real, as, as I read it, Islamic sort of dynamism that's come into the whole argument. Like, this is our land. We have to have it all. And I don't know how you make peace with a neighbour that doesn't want you there. Yeah, yeah, sir. It, it, it is an appalling mess. And even within Israeli society, there's huge division between about the consequences of 67. Um, our far-right um, uh, controversial culture minister called Miri Regev has said... Um, 
that these are the areas, and he's talking about the areas that were won over in 67, uh, talking about Jerusalem, Temple Mount, where Abraham struck the roots of the Hebrew nation, and they are full of Jewish history from then until today. Regardless of the disagreements regarding the conflict over these areas, every Israeli must know and cherish these places as the cradle of the Jewish nation and its culture. But on the other hand, Amos Oz, now one of Israel's most celebrated writers, he's cautioned against a sense of national celebration um, that's been planned in September 467. And he wrote at the time, we are condemned now to rule people who do not want to be ruled by us. I have fears about the kinds of seeds we will sow in the near future in the hearts of the occupied. Even more, I have fears about the seed that will be planted in the hearts of the occupiers. Now, obviously, you've come from or more born in Gaza, the occupied um, so what do you make of the Israeli politics of the time and how that's evolved to the future, to, or to the present rather? Well, um, it's important before we talk about Israeli politics that we put things into context in mm. relation to the political landscape in um, in the Israeli context and the Palestinian context. I do not think uh, we can talk about history um, in fast forward ways uh, and I'm just uh, uh, in a minute or two and conclude that this is the historical perspective. Of course not. Yeah. I think what I have heard so far um, uh, isn't necessarily the full picture of history. History is very dynamic. History is very complex. Uh, and I think I believe it's important that we take into account those complexities uh, and, and, and those um, details that are important to examine in relation. Well, you to, give us your perspective. Well, the, the the first of all, I'm coming from. I've come originally, as you said, from Gaza, uh, so I'm not here to comment on Israeli internal issues and politics. But I'm here to talk about Israeli politics and policies in relation to the Palestinians mm. and the issue of Palestine. Uh, secondly, uh, in relation to the historical perspective. I think there was a number of details and a number of arguments that were missing there uh, in that historical account that we've heard. Firstly, the Balfour Declaration, let's be clear about it. Uh, the Balfour Declaration emerged out of the, uh, uh, out of the British colonial control of the, uh, uh, of the Middle East uh, and the land of Palestine. And uh, the Balfour Declaration meant in practice that Britain, A, supported the creation of the State of Israel uh, in the land of Palestine uh, for different reasons. And secondly, it meant that, the, uh, that, the, that Britain actively accepted Zionism and supported mm -hmm. Zionism. Uh, Zionism, a movement uh, that in the Palestinian context um, has been expansionist and colonialist. So that's an, an important element to take into account. The uh, second uh, really point to make here is uh, also about the Balfour Declaration is it um, it committed uh, Britain committed itself to uh, establishing an Israeli state in the land of Palestine. Uh, so in a way, it recognized self determination uh, for uh, for Jewish people in the land of Palestine. Um, which was against international law because Palestine was occupied by Britain and ruled by Britain. But also the, uh, the Balfour Declaration did not recognize the political and national rights of the indigenous Palestinian population. It talked about uh, um, uh, non-Jewish communities living in Palestine 
having religious and civil rights. But it never acknowledged, A, the Palestinian right to self-determination, and B, the Palestinian national and political rights. So Britain has a historical responsibility uh, in terms of what happened in Palestine and what we call now the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think that's well recognized, to now, be fair. The second yeah. point about that is the uh, UN partition plan. I don't think it was as straightforward as we've heard. The UN partition plan um, included three terms. First, that Jerusalem would stay under international UN ad- administration. And second, uh, that the uh, the land of Palestine would be partitioned 44% and let's let's pay attention to the figures here. Forty-four percent would go to the Arab Palestinian population for their future state, and they were the majority in the country. Secondly, fifty-six um, percent um, would go to the minority in the country, that is the uh, the Jewish population. Sorry, I'm so, just confused for a second. Forty-four percent of what, and fifty-six of the land of the land to go to the according to the UN partition plan to go to the Palestinian population. And that's all record. You can yeah. check the UN record. And they were the majority in that land, the Palestinians, and 56% to go of the land to go to the uh, future Israeli state. So there is a big question here, uh, uh, which is around the human rights and also around equality. Okay, the land was divided in, in, in ways that was not equal uh, and did not take into account the national and uh, the political rights of the Palestinians there. The second point to make about the UN partition plan, and that's important, uh, which is uh, it, uh, it also, similar to the, uh, the Balfour Declaration, it denied the Palestinians their right to self-determination, mm-hmm. okay, uh, by acknowledging uh, the uh, creation of the State of Israel and the land of Palestine. The third point to make about this partition plan is uh, it wasn't a negotiated settlement. Let's take that into account. It was not a negotiated settlement, okay? It was a settlement that was imposed on the region and a settlement that imposed by the UN and inter- the international community on the Palestinians, okay? For all of these reasons, in terms of the partition of the land, the equality of partition, and the, if there is ever equality in partition, uh, the, the distribution of land for the denial of self-determination and also the fact that it was imposed uh, on the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. It wasn't negotiated. For all of these reasons, the Palestinians rejected it. So let me put that into perspective. It's not fair to come forward and say, well, the Palestinians, the Arabs rejected this plan and wanted to destroy Israel. No, there are complexities in history. There are details. We need to take that into account. Now, I'll go to your question, uh, Susan, if you don't mind about the, and I'm sorry for giving that historical perspective, uh, but I think it's important to uh, give that context. Now, uh, in relation to um, the uh, Israeli, Israeli political parties and the issue of Palestine. The, uh, the, the Palestinian struggle um, and the Palestinian struggle has been based on three principles. Okay? One is national identity. Secondly, uh, resistance to uh, uh, military occupation and colonial rule. And thirdly, uh, the achievement of self-determination. Okay? Now, how the Israeli um, how the Israeli parties responded to that. Well, if you look at labor, what you find is in terms of history, again, 1967, um, uh, when the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank uh, started, 
1967, during the war that you referred to and Gideon Lowy referred to, the uh, the settlement project, okay, the illegal colonization of Gaza and the West Bank began by the Labour Party, okay, and it continued. Uh, it continued at ideological and political uh, levels uh, in the 70s by the Likud. Okay, so there and they're the two main parties, Likud and Labour. Oliver Sears, um, Yasser there just before the break was giving um, an account of how the state of Israel was founded, you know, by the UN and going back again to the Balfour Declaration. And, you know, all these decisions were made at the time which have had these enormous consequences. Um, how can it be undone or moved forward, do you think? I don't think you can undo it. Yeah. I think that that's um, just not realistic. You have to work um, with, uh, with with the situation that, that we find ourselves in. You can't actually ever turn the clock back. That won't work. And also... Um, uh, you know the 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 makeup of the, this country has changed um, m- my m- my feelings uh, for for what they're worth are that uh, you have to look at at other societies where there have been conflicts uh, and w- while comparisons are odious and I'm not the first to have said that um, it's possibly the way to look uh, look for a for some kind of Equality and solution. Um, I, uh, I I'm very interested in the, the, the conflict resolution in, in Northern Ireland, um, and I'm really interested in how the, the, those two warring parties managed to find an accommodation. Um, and it starts with uh, respect. It, it it must start with respect. You have to look at the people uh, you are in conflict with as individuals, as human beings with the same rights and aspirations and hopes and treat them as such rather than people that somehow you wish would disappear somehow because um, that that won't happen. We know that. So uh, my, my, my feelings are that this comes with a change of leadership and this has, on the Israeli side, you, we, we've experienced the worst government in the history of the state of Israel and it goes on and on and on. You won't have a breakthrough unless you have uh, clearer thinking, uh, new thinking, uh, rather than this uh, cycle of demonization, it just doesn't work. I know you met Ian Paisley Jr. recently and you asked him about what was the key moment or the key shift in the North. Well, um, I, I, I was, when I met him, it was uh, during this um, exhibition in uh, London that I hosted uh, called Jerusalem. Which I think is worth explaining to people. Well, uh, briefly, um, I represent an artist called Colin Davidson who makes very large-scale portraits of all sorts of people. And uh, for this project in January 2014, we went to Jerusalem and we found 12 individuals from as far as we could manage from across the political, social, cultural, religious divide. Um, And uh, Colin painted them. We uh, 
put them on show in my gallery on Molesworth Street and created Jerusalem in microcosm. There they were, uh, cheek by jowl, people who didn't necessarily um, like each other very much. Um, and uh, because of Colin's extraordinary ability to really get to the soul of an individual, um, actually by naming them only by their first names, uh, certainly in some cases you were able to uh, decipher where where they came from, but actually um, it wasn't so straightforward. Yeah, so you were looking I, I've at individuals. I've seen this, and it, I found it profoundly moving that you were looking at uh, this portrait of a person who we know came from Jerusalem, and so they could be Jewish, they could be Arab. You, you didn't know anything about them, and lots more. And, just, and but the point was, they were a human being; they yeah. were a person. And I thought it was an amazing way so to it, look at it. Ian, Ian Paisley Jr. came to the show, which we launched in London in March, and um, I said to him, "You know, it doesn't surprise me that uh, your father and Martin McGuinness became friends, but how on earth did it begin?" And he looked at me and said that it was very, very difficult. But he said, you know what? Uh, Once the ice was broken, there was no turning back. So it's that Rubicon that needs to be crossed where you actually stop the demonization and you understand that the value of a Palestinian life is exactly equal to the value of a Jewish life or a Christian life, or any, any other life. Mm. And from that position, I believe anything is possible. Um, Susan, Oliver's friend, Philippe Sands, the human rights lawyer, is speaking in Dalky this afternoon at the Book Festival, mm-hmm. and I'd encourage anyone who can't go along to hear him. He's written a book called East West Street about um, the origins of uh, the terms, the legal crimes of genocide and crimes mm-hmm. against humanity, which makes it sound like a dry legal book, but it's not. You should uh, you should read it. And the, the difference in those two crimes is is that you commit genocide against a people, you know, be it for their tribe or their religion, mm-hmm. but crimes against humanity is against the individual. And what strikes me as the heart of the problem, I think, about Israel is that because it was founded for a religious group of people to protect them, that bedding down that identity is what made religion and identity matter so much and that this is the real heart of the conflict. Can you see a point where the people can ever get past their identity, where each isn't trying to destroy the other, that the other is seen as the existential threat against Mm -hmm. them? You know, and to get to that point where, like Oliver's exhibition, the Colin Davidson portrait, you're just looking at them as people and not as a Jew and not as an Arab. No, I know what you're saying because yeah. the Jewish people believed that they <clears throat> believed that they were the biblical chosen people, and then the um, Arab Muslims follow a, a different um, system, and they believe that if they've ever had the land, they should get it back. So I think the answer is they are so diametrically opposed. It would be very hard to hope that maybe you could see the person sitting opposite you, because you're not looking at the individuals, you're looking at a, a, a 
totally different mindset. And of course, you know, as you know, I always come back to the point that, you know, if, if number one of, of your charter of the people that you're trying to do peace with says they want you removed, it's actually quite hard to overcome that. But Have there been leaders that could have changed things but were lost due to internal politics? Well, I think you could say that the... Um, the Fata movement are perhaps much more reasonable than Hamas. Hamas are much more ideologically religious, as I see and it. Tell and me more about, uh, tell me more about Fata then. Well, at the moment, Mahmoud Abbas is now, I think he's nearly 80, isn't he? Well, uh, I'm from Palestine, I can tell you. OK, more all, all right, all right. Okay. Well, you could uh, probably answer that better. Yes. But, but uh, as I understand it, yeah. he would perhaps shortly have to face new elections, would he? I don't know. But it is interesting that we read that Hamas and Fata, who've been absolutely deadly enemies. And Yasser, you can tell me this. Is it true that Mamoussa Bad has not been able to put a foot in the Gaza Strip recently? But you can ask him that in a second. But just yeah. to finish... Well, on the Israeli side, maybe, <coughs> yeah. yeah. But just to, just to kind of be a little bit more general, which I know I probably can be criticised for being, I think that the, some of the mindset of the um, Middle East is changing in that there would have been a total cohesion of Arab countries who are anti-Israel. And I suspect now that's slightly changing, maybe because of the Arab Spring, maybe because just about all Middle East countries in some way or other could be described as failed states. I think that you had um, President Trump going to talk to the Saudis and possibly because he has this rather odd businessman approach where he's says something he probably shouldn't and then maybe it leads to a better answer. Maybe he did say to the Saudis, would you be a little bit more peaceful in your outlook towards Israel and let's get perhaps some settlement, maybe the settlements not be so rigidly um, anti when you... um, join the UN, any UN vote has been always anti-Israel. There's such an anti-Israel bias at the UN. So that's another point just to look at. And then the Israeli government, it's a, 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 I think there's 120 seats and they only have a majority of 60. So perhaps you could say there could be a change in the Israeli government. So in the end, you're really going to say, if you have a Palestinian state formed, is it going to be such that they will fire down rockets on Israel? Will will Israel become so endangered by, say, rockets on the Golan Heights? We don't know that. So it's all to be decided. So tell me about Palestinian leadership then, um, Yasser. And do you see any possibility that a leader will come forward who will be able to do the kind of thing that Nelson Mandela did, you know, which is to look the enemy in the eye and learn to speak their language and learn to find some kind of common ground? Well, I think it's important to recognize. I'm glad you asked me about the Palestinian question since I'm originally from Palestine too, so that that makes sense. Uh, The the Palestinian um, position in relation to Israel was clear, uh, at least the PLO position, in 1993 when they signed a peace agreement with Israel, okay? And that was uh, the PLO led by Fatah, which was led by Yasser Arafat. Okay, and, and we're all familiar with him exactly. very much in Ireland. And that yeah. was a, a Palestinian national movement that emerged in response to the Israeli occupation, okay? So it's important to put that into context. Mm. This Palestinian national movement has faced some challenges, 
it has failed at some historical um, in terms of hist- in some historical uh, uh, examples. But nonetheless, it's a national movement, a secular movement, a national movement that has emerged in response to the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank uh, and the denial of Palestinian political rights. Now, the, that movement in particular and its leadership made the Palestinian position very clear in 1993 when they signed a, a, a peace agreement with Israel. And they made it very clear that they are interested in exploring peaceful and diplomatic and political ways to establish Palestinian statehood and also to achieve Palestinian uh, political rights. Now, the point about Hamas, um, uh, uh, it seems to be uh, back and, and forth. And what's Hamas? Just now for people who don't know the differences you know, between the different, say, wings in the Palestinian... Hamas is a Palestinian uh, uh, organization that emerged in Gaza uh, in the late 80s. Uh, it's a, uh, it came from uh, an Islamist political background, and yeah. uh, it's also um, uh, so Fatah was secular, but Hamas is more Islamist. Would political that be fair? Islamist, right? Okay. Uh, they emerged in the political context. Right. It's important to to recognize that. Yeah. Okay. So they're both political organizations. Okay. One of them came from a political Islamist background. And the other one came from a secular nationalist background. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Hamas believes in, and, and I don't agree with violence, um, someone who is teaching about uh, uh, about conflict and conflict resolution. Well, you work in a department uh, of ecumenics. Uh, well, so. <laughs> and I teach on Middle East politics yeah. and also the uh, and political uh, processes uh, and so on, and conflict and conflict resolution. So I do not agree with violence, yeah. but... It's important to recognize that Hamas recently has made it very clear, okay, that they are also supportive of a two-state solution. There is a policy document that came out one month ago from Hamas saying they recognize a two-state solution, okay, and they are prepared to engage on that basis. So now we have Fatah and Hamas who share the same political uh, uh, political perspective in relation to conflict resolution in Palestine and the achievement of Palestinian self-determination. The point about, uh, I'm not sure if we study political is- Islam that gives us the right to generalize about Muslims and Arabs and so on. Uh, I have to be clear here. The point about uh, the Muslims believe they want to drive the Jews out, well, let me, uh, of the land and drive them into the sea and so on. Let me put that uh, clear, Okay. The uh, anti-Semitism, as Oliver spoke, uh, was not a Middle Eastern product. It was a European product. In fact, if you read history, what you find is Jews and Jewish people and Jewish communities flourished in the Middle East when they were persecuted in Europe. So let's put that into perspective. Yeah, it's a point I've often heard and it is ironic. It was um, a European problem that was being solved. So Oliver... Uh, one thing about the North, and you were talking about the North, is I had uh, relations who lived in Portadown. And back in the early 90s, when the peace process started, um, we said to them, what do you think will happen? And they said, when the DUP has destroyed the UUP and when Sinn Féin has destroyed the SDLP, then they'll sit down and they'll talk. And it was the extreme parties wanted to make sure that they would get whatever power was going for themselves and they needed to destroy the centre before then they could safely come to the centre themselves. Are there any parallels like that with Israel-Palestine or is it just the extremes 
are making everything fatally worse. Um, I'm of the view that uh, one of the biggest stumbling blocks in Israel is the particular form of proportional representation. Oh, tell me about that. Well, uh, you you just have... uh, uh, a ridiculous amount of parties and coalition governments with um, small parties like Shas, for instance, which is an ultra-Orthodox party, um, calling the shots. Um, it's So uh, as, as a result, you have um, uh, uh, ru- ruling governments that are far... Um, far too extreme because in order to hold on to power, um, they, they have to... Um, uh, invoke policies that um, r- really uh, they'd rather wo- they they rather wouldn't. Uh, so that that is one of that that's a key problem. Right. Um, I, I believe um, there is also a population <coughs> problem. Um, the 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 uh, orthodox um, in Israel are, um, are are growing at a faster rate um, and. Um, I believe now for the very first time uh, entries into schools, um, 51% of entries into school now are, uh, are um, Orthodox Jews. So uh, the, the, the secret for me, I grew up in London and if you want to see multiculturalism work, look at London. You have um, an extraordinary... I, I call it a mosaic rather than a melting pot yeah. of people who are bound together by geography. They're bound together um, by a way of life. They call themselves Londoners. And guess what? They have equal rights under the law. So there, are, there is no mystery here. The, the, the starting point, as I said before, is respect and equality. There is a stretch, I know London rather well, there's a stretch of the Edgware Road, which is like Lebanon, um, and frankly, there is absolutely no problem, no tension, no n- n- the, the, even the idea of those terms, walking down that street, you are as welcome as anyone else, and vice versa. Susan, we're coming to the end of the programme but is the problem there that, you know, the idea of Israel and the entire concept of Israel is that it is founded for a religion. It was founded for a particular people with a particular identity. And therefore, that makes it so much more difficult to achieve this idea of a multicultural state. Well, I do know that I totally agree. It was formed to be a place for the Jewish people to go. But you could say that the neighbours who are Arab, they also have to have a country to go to. You you know, you couldn't say otherwise than that. But in the end, you've got to remember that 20% of everybody living in Israel are Arabs. They have complete um, human rights, exactly the same as the Jewish people. So it, it can work and it does work. But Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the only country in the Middle East that has open and fair elections. So if you look at some of the other states and you say they're failed states, look at Gaza. They haven't grown one tomato. It was a tomato-growing place. I mean, maybe, yes, why they, did they, they not They had growing? free elections in Gaza, by every the way. I don't know if you know that, actually, I in fact. In Gaza you, as well, they had okay, free elections. If, well, look, I'll give Yasser the last word. We have a minute yeah. left, OK? Yeah. It looks to me like the centre has fallen. 
you know, in in both um, states. Can you see any possibility of a centre rising or will it be like the North, that is, will, it, the, the extremes on each side will finally have to just get that meeting point and recognise they can't go on like this? Any possibility of conflict resolution, mm. and I'm interested in that. Yeah. Okay. Um, any possibility in conflict resolution would have to include, okay, equal rights, okay, and would have to include as well dealing with the historical injustice and would have to include a sense of just coexistence. Just coexistence. Just coexistence, okay? And it also, it's important to recognize you mentioned a Northern Ireland. Well, if you look at Northern Ireland, what you find is the Good Friday Agreement was very clear about equal rights of Catholic and Protestant communities, of British and Irish communities in the North, of both sides having the right to self-determination. So uh, if we are genuine about a possibility of reconciliation, we need to deal with ideology, okay? And we need to deal with Zionism. And we need also a sense of uh, a sense of, uh, of just coexistence. And also the final point is we need a real reconciliation that is based on justice, equality, and self-determination. Okay. And that's the last word. So that is it for today. 